You're listening to the Bearded Hope Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. His nose is running this way. <laughs> you know, it's how we roll. Okay. Now we're rolling. <laughs> All right, so the last few weeks we have been looking at the beautiful gospel. Uh, we've been kind of breaking it down, looking at some, some different aspects of it. Uh, we've really been tackling this idea of where do you start humanity at? Do you start humanity with depravity or do you start humanity at the beginning with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, creating man in his own image, breathing into him and thus making him a child of God? Um, we looked at uh, how if you start anywhere else than that, you start seeing man in total lostness. We find humanity completely broken, completely unable to even have any type of relationship. Not only relationship with God, but it makes it impossible. If you're depraved, it makes you completely impossible and void of having relationship with any living creature, let alone another person in the human race. Um, it also puts God in a perspective of being somewhere lost in space. Like he's not even near, not even close, not even on the same plane as we are, but off somewhere in a distant universe, maybe not even ours. Um, he kind of looks more like, I don't know if you've seen the Avengers yet, I haven't, but I'm familiar with the comic books and what's happening in this whole infinity stone crisis thing that's happening. Uh, but we kind of paint this picture if we start with humanity in this depraved state you kind of put God in this perspective of being Thanos uh, who is the character in the new movie I don't want to ruin it for you uh, but there is a moment when uh, he attempts to wipe out half the universe by snapping his fingers and that's kind of this picture that we have painted of a God who is separate, who is different, who is off in outer space somewhere, completely separated from his creation because they are depraved. Um, but if we start in Genesis 1 and 2, we see humanity as the image of God, his children, that he actually loves us. And another thing that I want to tackle, and I thought about this this week, we always talk about Genesis chapter 3 as the fall. The fall being this moment where there's this big, huge gulf that happens between God and man, and that puts God in that position. But maybe we should change our terminology and quit using the fall and maybe start seeing it as this is where humanity was wounded. This is where humanity uh, was marked. This is where humanity... Uh, turned a page, so to speak, and looked in a different direction than looking at Father, I think that might help us grasp uh, the understanding of what happened with the gospel, the good news, and how the first time the gospel was ever preached was all the way back at the place of woundedness, where it says the thing that brought, the thing that brought this thought of deception, the snake, this thing that brought this broken understanding would be bruised, would be broken, would be stepped on by the one that was coming. 
speaking of Jesus, he heals his wounded kids. There's not a separation there. There's not this moment of, of complete uh, chasmness. I'm trying to think of the right word, but it's this picture of him being some far out place, but he's not. He's here. And we've also looked at how he worked, how one, through one man this brokenness or this woundedness happened, but also through one man, healing became a reality. Not just healing for some, but healing for all. The, the, the second man was the elect, that Jesus is the elect, and that we find our chosenness in him. We find that who we really are through him, that we've always been children of God, that we've always been a part of his family. And last week we talked about how healing was for everybody, not just for some, not just for some certain group, but it was for everyone. And that it is our hope, like we read in the last few scriptures there in last week in 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.1-6, that all men would be saved, that all men would experience grace. That would be our heart, right? Why would we hope for anything less? Why would we hope for there to be just a few people in eternity? Why would we hope for just a few people to be in God's presence? Why would we not hope for all? So today we're going to look at grace. We're going to look at absolute grace. So let's do a comparison again. If we, if we look at what happens when we start human history, human history with total lostness, with depravity, that understanding leads us to a grace that's just for few, that's just for a chosen group of people. You might have heard it called something like this, irresistible grace. Now, when you hear the term irresistible, that sounds like, that's not really a bad thing, is it? Like, if, if someone told me that they, they were serving an irresistible sundae, like ice cream sundae, like, I'd be all about that, because that means that that ice cream sundae is so good, I can't turn away from it. I'm like, I have to have that. It sounds good. But when you dive in deeper to this understanding of someone's depraved and there's only irresistible grace for those who are chosen, that's when you start hearing phrases and things that sounds good, but really um, it starts putting grace in this position of control in the sense of that it's a total assault on the elect. They have no other choice but to move towards it. I don't know about you, but that sounds more like a tyrannical being than someone who's offering what grace actually is. You must do this or else. You have no other choice but to. It sounds like almost assault and battery. It sounds like a pushing, a a shoving compared to what we read about Jesus that reveals who Father actually is in the New Testament. With irresistible grace taught from the perspective of depravity, there is no possible answer other than conformity. That sounds like a robot being programmed to do what it's supposed to do and not a creation that was created in the image of God. 
Conformity does not equal relationship. Husbands, you ever try to conform your wife to something? How well does that go? I would say that that's probably abuse, right? Right? If you try to get to, if you try to conform someone to to something that they don't want to, and force it, that's abuse. That's not only abuse, but that's abuse and brainwashing. That's not relationship. So this is where the difference is. This is where there's a difference between this understanding. If we start with depravity and moves us to this irresistible grace, it's only for some that has to be conformed to compared to the beautiful gospel. There's a word that's used in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. It's called kenosis. Jesus revealed it, shared it, lived it, and showed us that that's who God actually is. Kenosis means a complete emptying out, a self-giving of one self. It's where we get this, maybe you've read it before, when we read the Gospel of Mark, it's called the Gospel of the Servant, or Jesus the King as servant. It's this picture, and we see Mark, and you read it, Mark's a real fast book. It's boom, boom, boom. It's action-packed. It's like, it's like the comic book version of Matthew, Luke, and John. Matthew, Luke, and John are huge. They're, all, they're like stories in the sense of, it's like reading a novel as where Mark is short, sweet, concise, and it's over and over again, this action moment where Jesus is constantly giving himself out in these situations where he's showing and healing and revealing and and teaching, and boom, 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 and people are coming to Jesus, boom, 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 and they're seeing the Father, and they're being set free. It's this picture of a complete giving of oneself. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about Jesus, and it shows us the right picture to have about the Father. Philippians 2, starting with verse 5, And I'm going to read from the Passion Translations. It says, And consider the example that Jesus, the Anointed One, has set before us. Let let his mindset become your motivation. He existed in the form of God, yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. He was a perfect example, even in his death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God exalted him and multiplied his greatness, and he has now been given the greatest of all names. Jesus emptied everything out of himself for humanity. He gave. It's the picture of what the Father's doing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique son. He gave. It's the same word, kenosis. He emptied himself out. He poured himself out. He came in the form of man and lived among us. The incarnation of Jesus reveals that God is always giving himself for the sake of humanity. 
he's always in the act of pouring himself out. He's always in the act of kenosis. Matter of fact, the definition that we could have of God is a, a I'm trying to say it, a kenotic uh, agape. A self-giving, pouring out of oneself, complete, total, perfect love. And Jesus is showing us this all through the Gospels. He says, if you remember, he says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. So if you see me giving everything that I am and pouring all that I am out, then that's how the Father is. The Father is constantly pouring himself out and giving himself to humanity. He's showing his, his self-giving or his self-donation to humanity. And this is love at its truest form. It's the premier expression of who he actually is. And because God has this kinetic love, in his very essence, he cannot violate consent and free will. Think about that for a second. If he's self-giving, self-pouring out, gives everything to the point that he, he gave himself, he poured himself out to the point that he came as a man, that his, the very definition of who he is is this, this kinetic love, this self-giving, perfect love. If that's who he is, then there's no way he could violate your consent and your free will. To do so would violate the very nature of love, and God is love. So an irresistible or you-have-to-submit kind of grace is completely out of the question. And so is a grace that comes with conditions. Grace isn't grace if it has conditions. And I, I've been thinking for the last few weeks about uh, even my own kids. It doesn't matter what my kids do, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them absolutely, not partly. I'm not going to put conditions on my love. I'm not going to tell them, if you do this, this, and this, then I will love you. That's not how that rolls, right? And there's a ton, listen, there are a, I, 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 I've worked with teenagers for a long time, and I, I have talked to teenagers, and I have heard them tell stories of their relationships with their parents. And, and I've heard these things like, where there's this conditional love set at the table in their home. And they're completely broken by it. And they're searching, wanting, <laughs> To find something, some sort of stability. Trying to find someone or something. If that happens on the natural aspect, think about it for all of humanity. If all of humanity thinks that God's love and grace is conditional, how else would they act? What else would they be looking for? They're going to be looking for a lot of different things. And where this whole idea of grace and love coming with conditions is from a heart of control. 
Because that's something that we human beings really struggle with. And, and the church is no different. The church is no different. Because with control, there's always money. And money's not the problem. Money's not the problem. Money's a good thing. Money's an awesome thing. But when money, but with, when, when the idea of control is attached to money, then money is used for a wrong thing. It's used for evil and not good. And that's why when you see the early church and they were all together, there's this picture, well, they gave up everything. Listen, you have to have stuff to give stuff, right? So there were people that came into that group that had a whole lot of money. And yes, they gave of themselves, but they still had to have money. (laughs) They still had to keep on doing business. They still had to keep doing the things that they were doing. And guess what? There was no control. They just brought it together to take care of other people. That's why you read stories later on. And, and with Paul, he meets these families that are very well-to-do. Remember Priscilla? I think it's Priscilla. She had a dyeing business. She would, she would dye clothes a certain color. She made bank. She was rich. And she was the, one of the chief leaders of the church, if not the chief leader of the church that Paul was meeting at. And she was financing him to go to these other places. So money's not... But what happens is control because for some reason human beings are so scared of freedom we're terrified of freedom for some reason we're terrified christ has come and unlocked the door and set us free and we're terrified to step outside the cage so we want to close it and that enters into the leader's hearts if they don't see enough numbers coming to church, they don't see enough money coming in the offering plate, if they don't see enough stuff get done, it freaks them out. And so what do they do? They start preaching messages of condemnation saying, you have to come because if you don't come, you might not get in. Have you ever sat under some teaching like that? If you don't give a certain percentage in the offering plate every week, then you're not going to be blessed. <laughs> Who's, who's heard that before? I grew up on that. I used to hear stories. All kinds of stories. People get up and give half hour messages before they take up an offering or receive the offering. Tell stories about farmers not giving, not giving their tithe and crops being wiped out. and All kinds of crazy things. Nutso things. Why? For control. To feel safe. We, it's something that our brain does, and I don't know why. Our brain is afraid of freedom, and our brain is afraid of doing something that pushes against what we've always done. And as soon as something shifts in our surrounding, it's almost like we go into this flight mode. My wife and I were talking about it last week. There's something that happens in our bodies. And it's because back in the day when we used to sit around a campfire and a T-Rex showed up, our brain said, run, right? And that was a good thing. Or a bear showed up like, yeah, we need to get out of here. But for some reason, we've replaced doing hard things with a T-Rex. And doing hard things and stepping out and being free is not, is not the T-Rex. It's not the bear that we should be running from. It's this thing that we should be running towards. We've talked about how Christ has given us eternal life. 
and we kind of try to park that off somewhere in the future. But eternal life means boundless, free. There are no strings attached, free life. I'm open, and now I can walk. And, and Paul says that all things are permissible, but not all things are good for you. That's the world that we walk in now. But we're scared to death. I'm scared to death and I'm going to choose something that's not good for me. Why do we feel that way and why are we afraid? I love the scripture, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, why would you try to taste anything else? You're not. But we have this condition of lowered expectations for ourselves that we think that we're going to just go... We're just going to go do all this stuff. And we have lower expectations for our friends and family and loved ones, the other brothers and sisters that we have in Christ. We have so much low expectations of them that they're going to judge and condemn us and not walk in relationship with us that if we did perhaps taste something that wasn't good for us and we started to go towards it, we, we have such low expectations for them to actually have relationship with us, to talk to us and say, do you really want to go down that way? But if we live under this understanding of irresistible, this is how it is and you have to do it this way, and if you don't conform, then you're a hell missile. If that's how you live, then that's, that's the expectations that you walk in. You walk in brokenness. You walk in pain. And that's not where he wants us. And that's why... We're trying to open up this paradigm, this, this new uh, narrative to where we can see that this is actually the story of the Father. And he's trying to show us that in this story, there's this beautiful good news that he's offering this absolute grace that has no conditions. It has nothing other than his self pouring out over us. There are no strings attached. There are no limitations. He's constantly giving himself to all creation. Constantly. Now, I'm one to think, uh, feel, walk in. I, I don't believe the Father causes natural disasters. I don't believe he does all that. It happens. I believe that the Father is constantly pouring himself out in his grace, mercy, love, hope, peace to help in all those situations. I know that there's some that teach that he does this and he does that. and Well, they can teach that and that's fine, but that's not where I'm walking. I don't see that. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't see that. And when I see Jesus and he's the picture of the Father, I don't read Jesus and go, well, yeah, but you know his, his father's up there with his finger just waiting to shove it in the earth and cause a volcano to explode in Hawaii. I, I don't, that's not the picture that I see. I see him constantly pouring himself out. And honestly, if you go back to, to the beginning and you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you quit seeing it as a separation and a fall and start seeing it as a sickness and a wounding that happened, then you start seeing that this wounding goes deep. The wounding is not just in humanity, but the wounding is in creation. And creation is wounded. And Christ on the cross brought healing, not only to us, but healing to all the earth. And it's our 
It's our part to play, to share this message, to bring this redemptive healing to all the earth. We've been given stewardship of the whole thing. And not to go down an ecological path, but if we've been given stewardship of the earth and we're constantly pumping toxics, uh, properties into the atmosphere and, to, and into the ground, what do you think is going to happen? Is that being a good steward? No, it's not being a good steward. Now listen, I'm not like Earth Day weirdo, you know, you got to recycle all that jazz. Probably not a bad idea, but, but I do see where we've done some things out of greed and control that have actually hurt places. I mean, look at Flint, Michigan. Is it Flint that has lead in their water? That's not being a good steward. And we're part of the healing process. We're part of this healing the land as we share this message. And just being who we're supposed to be and taking care of what we're supposed to take care of, we bring healing. Our hands are his hands. We walk in that. Our minds are his minds. There's creative answers that God is wanting to release in us to bring answers to these problems. We used to walk in that. The church actually used to walk in that. We used to, to invent things like, remember penicillin? A son and daughter of God created that. A believer created that. The stars and the, and the rotation of the planet, all of that was discovered by people who were followers of Christ. A lot of the major scientific discoveries that happened before, for some reason, the church made science the enemy, a lot of those contributions came from the church. There's no strings attached. There's no limitations. We carry this. Psalm 130. I want to read this passage, and and I want you to see I want you to see the scripture and see it as a a template for what happens in in the majority of the Bible. This message is in the majority in, in almost every single book. You can't get away from this message. It says, Lord, I cry out to you. This is verse 1. Lord, I cry out to you. Out of the depths of my despair, hear my voice, O God. Answer this prayer and hear my plea for mercy. Lord, if you measured us and marked us with our sins, who would ever have their prayers answered? Now, for some reason, we think that that's what's in every single book. But this is the psalmist declaring this this is not the father declaring this he's the one saying if you marked us out and if you said if this if you did this then nothing would be answered but the next verse he tells how the father actually is but your forgiving love is what makes you so wonderful no wonder you are loved and worshiped this is why i wait upon you expecting your breakthrough For your word brings me hope. 
I long for you more than any watchman would long for the morning light. I will watch and wait for you, O God, throughout the night. O Israel, keep hoping, keep trusting, and keep waiting on the Lord, for he is tender-hearted, kind, and forgiving, and he has a thousand ways to set you free. He himself will redeem you. He will ransom you from the cruel slavery of your sins. That is the painting of the portrait of Father all throughout Scripture. Your forgiving love is what makes you so wonderful. But for some reason, we paint the picture of God with the verse before. If you measured us and marked us with our sins, who would ever have their prayers answered? But there's always a big but in the way. The next verse, but your forgiving love is what makes you so wonderful. Over and over again. You start, if, if you start scripture with Jesus and then see all of it through his lens, you start picking up the pattern all the way through it. You start seeing it. You start seeing that the Father has always looked at us with love and never with lightning bolts in his eyes. He's always seen us that way. Jeremiah 31.3 says, He loves us with an everlasting love, an unfailing love, a boundless love. His love cannot be hemmed in, cannot be boxed in, cannot be fenced in, cannot be put into anything other than boundlessness, which means it can never be contained. Never stopped. Even the language of Revelation 21 and 22 points to this picture of a father who is always waiting to have a relationship with you forever. Revelation is a picture of, of Jesus. It's the revelation of him. And I know there's been a whole lot of scary stuff taught about it. But once again, you kind of read scripture through the lens of Jesus. And when you read scripture through the lens of Jesus, it changes your perspective. You start seeing with a new view, through new lenses. And then when you start looking at time, you start looking at history, you start looking at uh, what was taking place when these books were written and what took place right after they were written, you, you really start seeing things in a new light. And so when we read Revelation 21 and 22, and you see it in the course of those first few years, those first hundred years when after Jesus ascended to heaven and you take it all into understanding and you start looking at it and you start seeing it, you start seeing the cross, you start seeing the grave, you start seeing the resurrection, the ascension, you start seeing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you start seeing that promise that Jesus gave to um, 
the religious leaders at the time that this generation will not pass away until the destruction of the temple or the destruction of all things that represented the law. And that they were going to have a generation to figure it out. And then 40 years later, you see the fulfillment of that happen when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple set it on fire, all the gold melted, and they tore it apart brick by brick. They laid standards, flags, in the Holy of Holies, and the Jews and the priests were crying, desolation, abomination, abomination of desolation, whatever that phrase is. You start looking about looking back into Daniel and start seeing some of the things that were promised about a second prince coming. The first prince comes on, a, comes on a donkey. The second prince comes on a, a white horse that brings destruction. And you start realizing that the, the second prince is this guy who was the son of a Caesar. Caesar? Caesar? How do you say it? <laughs> the son of the leader of the Roman Empire. And he rode in on a white horse. I mean, there's so much stuff there, and there's so many things, and, it's, and, and I promise you one day, I, I, I talked to someone about it, we're, we're going to look at some of that, maybe over this summer we'll break some of this book down, this scary book that's been taught <laughs> to scare people into salvation, and it's not something that's supposed to, supposed to be anything other than to show you the victorious nature of Jesus, our King. But when you take all that in and you see Revelation 21, 22 in the new different perspective, it's not really a new different perspective, it's really the early church's perspective, you start seeing that the culmination of all these things happening played out there in verse chapters 21 and 22 where now the kingdom is open and there's a river flowing and Jesus is there to bring healing. And he's offering all to come into relationship with him, to come and be a part of the family. And it's flowing out to all the nations, to everyone. And the, the leaves are bring, bringing healing. And There's a picture there that we could see where we're actually those trees. We're bearing fruit and we're bringing these, these leaves of, of refreshment and change and new life to the world. And I know well, there's, all, there's all this destruction and there's a new, but there's supposed to be a new heaven and a new earth. But when you start reading that terminology and that language and, the, and how John was writing and how he was writing from the same perspective as Old Testament writers, and when you see that when they talked about skies falling and blood raining and all this stuff, it was talking about the change of a nation, the, the overthrow of a kingdom, of stuff shifting from one to another. And that's what happened. Think about it. Jesus brought a new covenant. The old covenant had to be divorced, removed from humanity. It had to be completely taken, wiped out. It couldn't stay anymore. Jesus died once and for all. How could there be a continuation of constant killing to appease? It, it, it can't happen. So all, all this, the stars fall, all that stuff is a picture of a removal of an old system for what Jesus now brought. 
So really, when you see, when you read, and you get all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, it's honestly just another picture of the parable that Jesus taught about the dancing father or the prodigal son, as, as we've come to know it. But it's really, the story's about the father. He's throwing a party and saying, come. Come home. Come back to the original tent, intent that all of humanity was created for. To have relationship with me, to walk with me, to live with me. Boundlessly. If that doesn't spark hope in your heart, I don't know what else does. That's the amazing, awesome Father that we have. We have this hope, having complete assurance that God, who is love, will exhaust the full power of all his love to draw everyone to himself. Yet because of that love, he will never violate man's consent. He'll never violate their free will. Now I'm just going to be honest with you. I honestly don't know what that means. I don't know what that means for every single person. My heart in teaching this, just these past few weeks over on this message, my heart has been wrecked by the Father and His love and what He's doing. It has messed with me. And I have really started digging in this, into the, um, the Gospels. I've really started digging into Greek and Aramaic and the Hebrew and the things that, that Jesus actually spoke. I'm starting to realize and to see that when there's places in Scripture where it talks about judgment... You know, we've all read those scriptures, right? Judgment. Raw. That every time Jesus talks about judgment, every time that it's talked about the judgment of the Father, that every single time those Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew words are used, they all come with redemption and not destruction. And the only time that judgment is used, especially in the New Testament, when it talks about judgment that comes with damnation or judgment that comes with destruction is when a man judges another man. That messes with me. I've been looking at the word death in the New Testament especially. Death and judgment go hand in hand quite a bit in the New Testament. I'm starting to see that, that the, those words that for death still have a redemptive property to them. Especially when you see that Jesus came and conquered death. It says that he has the key of death. Remember he has the key of death hell in the grave. So who has death? Who's, who, who has it now? Who's, he does. So now when I say that 
He will exhaust his full power of love to draw everyone to himself, yet he won't use that love to violate consent. I'm telling you right now, I don't know anything other than the Father is doing everything he can to love people. So what happens after someone takes their final... This is kind of dangerous for, I guess, a preacher to say, isn't it? I don't know. (laughs) I know he won't violate someone. I know he won't force someone. So there there, there is something there. And what happens after someone says a final no? Is that the hell that we've always been taught? Is that, if you say no, then I'm giving you to death? Finality? No more? Neither one's cool. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Neither one's cool. Um... But I can tell you what I am positive about, and that is this exhaustive power of his love. And so that's why I can honestly say his heart is for all to come to him. And that's what I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe that all are going to, that's his heart. We know that he's not going to violate that love by making someone. So I'm going to leave that to him. It's okay to have mystery, right? It's okay to have mystery. I, I, I think that for some reason in the last hundred years, we've come down to this thing where we think that we have to have everything figured out. But as human beings, I think we've, I think we should have learned by now that we're not going to have everything figured out. I mean, let's be honest. One of the greatest ministries that men ever face is trying to figure out women. And ain't none of us guys figured that out yet completely, right? And that's part of the, that's part of the mystery and the allure and what causes us to love even more, right? I don't want to have my wife all figured out. I want there to be a mystery there. I want there to be an element to her that's like so, that, that, that brings an amazingness out of it. Like, how, like here's, here's, a good, here's a good example. There's times I'm like, how in the world that, does she love me the way that I am? Because there's times that I'm just a jerk. That amazes me. That's a mystery. I can't figure that out. So why do we have that, why do we have that relationship with our wives and husbands, or and wives, hopefully you have that relationship with your husband too that you can't figure us out. Like, why do they do the stupid thing? Like, why do they do that dumb stuff? <laughs> but honestly, why do we have that grace with each other, but we can't see that way with God? I don't, I don't understand. God, I don't understand this part. But that's okay. That's what makes you so great because you're so big and you're, and there is a mystery aspect to you. And I'll be honest with you, I think that's why humans naturally, for the most part, are drawn to a good mystery story. 
I think that's why they're drawn to it. Some of us are drawn to things like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. Others are drawn to like Agatha Christie and Father Brown. And maybe not even that. Maybe you're just like, I don't like any of that stuff. But you'll watch Law and Order. Or you'll watch Criminal Intent. Because you're like, or you'll watch what's, or Jag. Or I'm trying to think of some other ones. Because there's a mystery behind it. There's, there's something to it that you want to figure out. Sherlock. There's another good one. Sherlock. There's something to it. And that's because in our heart, we're drawn to mystery. And when we allow ourselves to see there's mystery in God sometimes, it causes us to yearn for more. I want to draw deeper in him to learn what this is. So I, I can be positive and, and, and absolute about his true love and understand that there's still some mystery there. So I'm making the case this morning that God's grace is absolute. It's not forced. It's a constant giving. It's a kinetic kenosis. It's a self-giving of himself. The word absolute means not diminished in any form or any way. It's complete, total, and perfect. That's the type of grace that I want to know. That's the super abundant grace that we read in a couple, a couple weeks ago in, in 2 Peter. Super abundant, absolute, awesome grace. That's what he's extending to us. He's extending to us, it fills us, and now we extend that to other people. And the moment we start extending absolute grace to other people, not irresistible grace, not you do this so you can come into relationship with us and the Father and our church, <laughs> but absolute grace, self-giving, pouring out of yourself into the lives of other people. When they experience that, they experience the Father. And the light turns on. And the scales fall off. And now they want more. And they want relationship. And they turn towards the Father and see him for who he is. That's good news. That's the beautiful gospel. Amen? Awesome. So next week is Mother's Day. Excited about Mother's Day. We are going to uh, rock that next week. We're going to be talking about love next week, transformative love. That'll be our last uh, uh, session on the beautiful gospel. Um, but invite your friends. Bring, bring your mom. Bring, bring your kids. Come. Uh, we're gonna, we'll do something special for all you mamas because Lord knows we wouldn't be able to do what we do if it wasn't for you. And so we're going to do that next week. We'll talk about love. It's always good when you're talking about love on Mother's Day, right? <laughs> no, it's not. I don't want to. It's always good to talk about love on Mother's Day. We'll do that next week. So, hey, let's pray. God, we just thank you for, uh, we thank you for your good news. We thank you how it's changed us. 
and how every day it's not only good news to other people that, that, that doesn't know you and hasn't seen you, but it's good news to us. It awakens on us. It changes us. It, we see new perspectives and new, uh, new places with you every single day in this beautiful good news. We thank you for it. We thank you for your absolute grace, your absolute pouring of yourself into humanity, to all the earth, and to all creation. You just, you just give of yourself to us, and we just thank you for it. It's so good. It's so awesome. It's, it's just overwhelming, and we just thank you for it. We bask in it. We want to just, just, just like diving into a big old lake, cool, fresh water, going in as deep as we can. That's what we want to do in you is we just want to dive in deep, and we, we just thank you for the just we can do that. <laughs> it's just so cool that that can happen. Uh, we thank you for this week. We ask that you be with Dwayne and Val and, and Logan as they're preparing and getting ready up there in Michigan. We ask that you keep them safe in their travels. Anyone else that's not here today and they're traveling or they're home sick and not well, not well, we thank you. We ask that you would just bring healing into their home. Holy Spirit, come and comfort them now. Uh, bring them hope. Uh, raise them up. We thank you for just a complete, total healing. Uh, we thank you for comfort. We thank you for anything else. So we know there's been a couple of moms this past week that's had some issues and fallen and gotten hurt. We ask that you just bring healing into their lives as well. I know David's mom and Dwayne's mom. Uh, so we just ask that you would just touch them as well and bring healing into their lives. We thank you, and we just give you glory and honor, Lord, in your name. Amen.